Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Bob McDonald. Welcome to Quirks and Quarks. On this week's show, a new vibrating diet pill could mechanically stretch your stomach to fool you into thinking you're full. The brain then senses um, the stretch, and it thinks, okay, the stomach is stretching. And so it triggers the entire cascade of events that occur when you actually take in food. And... Pollution is skewing sea turtle sex ratios, meaning males of an endangered species could be even more endangered. There's a period of time where their sex is determined, and if they're absorbing some of these chemicals in the yolk while this development is happening, they are producing more female hormones. Plus, identifying a supernova cinder, who's really leading the Serengeti migration? And fire and ice the costs and benefits for Icelanders living with lava. All this today on Quirks and Quarks. Last week on Quirks and Quarks, we reported the discovery of a new supernova, an exploding star. It was discovered by a Canadian astronomer in Chile. It's just possible some of our more uh, (coughs) mature listeners will remember that. In late February 1987, Dr. Ian Shelton from the University of Toronto made an incredible discovery. A supernova, the first visible to the naked eye since 1604. At the time, Quirk's host Jay Ingram spoke with him. Mr. Shelton, what's been happening to your supernova? The supernova, for the first two days, grew a little bit brighter from when it was first discovered. But it's still... It's not a very, very bright star. It's, it's a, a moderately bright star in the sky, and it has not changed over the past 10 days or so. It was a major event for astronomers, who within months convened a conference in Japan to discuss it. In attendance was Dr. Klaus Franzen, a young astrophysicist who got an incredible view of supernova 1987A, as it became known, right after that conference. He was so inspired, he's been studying it ever since. Why study something that happened in 1987 for more than 35 years? Well, because astronomers had never before had a chance to observe the aftermath of a supernova. What happened after the Titanic stellar explosion? And this week, thanks to new observations by the James Webb Space Telescope, they finally announced the definitive fate of supernova 1987A. Dr. Franzen is a professor of astrophysics at Stockholm University in Sweden. Hello, Dr. Franzen. Welcome to Quirks and Quarks. Hello, Bob. First of all, tell me about getting to see the supernova back in 1987. Where were you? Uh, After this conference in uh, Tokyo, I went by plane uh, down to Borneo. I and my wife actually climbed the highest mountain uh, in Southeast Asia, Mount Kinabalu. And we came up uh, to the peak in the middle of the night. And, uh, of course, I knew about the supernova very well and uh, looked at the large Magellanic cloud where the supernova was and actually saw it. This was in September 
it had already faded quite a bit, but it was visible with the naked eye. And uh, in uh, my binoculars, it was shining like a very nice little red diamond in the sky. And, uh, wow, a red diamond in the sky. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, you've been studying this supernova ever since. How did the mystery of uh, what was going on at the core start to unfold to you? Three underground detectors around the world detected a, a burst of neutrinos. These neutrinos are particles which interact extremely weakly with the ordinary matter. And, uh, and uh, the length of that pulse was about 10 seconds. That's where most of the energy from the supernova was released, which is enormous. But uh, the length of that pulse also indicated a compact object in the center should have been formed. So there are basically two different options. One is uh, the neutron star, and the other one is uh, that a black hole could have been formed in the center. So either of these options could happen. Well, what determines whether a supernova is going to cause a neutron star to form or a black hole? Very simplified, it's basically the mass of the star. So if a supernova has to have a mass more than 10 solar masses, but uh, if the mass is less than about 20, 25 solar masses, then it most likely it will result in a neutron star. But uh, for heavier stars than about 25 solar masses, the most likely outcome uh, is a black hole. So uh, from uh, the observations uh, before the supernova exploded, we could actually estimate the mass of the uh, star which exploded and that came out to be between 15 and 20 solar masses. So the most likely outcome was a neutron star, but uh, we didn't know. Now, I have sort of a sense of what a black hole is like. What's a neutron star like? Uh, it's uh, probably the most exotic thing we have in the universe, except for the black holes, because it's uh, just at the verge of becoming a black hole. So it's the most compact object you can think of. The mass of uh, these neutron stars are about uh, one and a half solar mass, but uh, the radius is only of the order of 10 kilometers. So it's uh, like compressing the sun or and a bit more than that into about 10 kilometers, which means that the uh, matter is extremely dense. Uh, cubic millimeter has the weight corresponding to a supertanker. It's very dense. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now, before the James Webb Space Telescope came along, we had the Hubble Space Telescope. What did you see when you used that telescope to look at 1987A? What you do see is a fairly complex system uh, consisting of uh, three rings around the center. They were ejected about 20,000 years before the explosion. And then in the center of the innermost ring, that's uh, where the supernova is and uh, where it exploded. And now when the supernova is expanding, it's expanding with about 10,000 kilometers per second. Then uh, after about five years, then it started to collide with this ring. And that heats up the gas in the ring. And that gives rise to a, a string of pearls, about 30 pearls around this supernova. So it's actually quite a beautiful picture uh, we have of the supernova. Okay, that's the material that's around the uh, star, but yes. did the Hubble image tell you anything about whether it's a neutron star in the middle or not? 
Well, we, of course, we tried to look for it in different ways, but uh, the problem with using uh, visible light, which the Hubble is doing, or ultraviolet, is that uh, that light is very easily absorbed by the material in the supernova. The supernova consists of gas, but also quite a lot of solid dust particles, and they scatter the light very efficiently, so you don't really see into the center in the visible light. So the difference with James Webb is that um, it's using infrared light, and infrared light can penetrate this dust much more easily, so it's not scattered as uh, much as the optical light, and therefore it's actually easy to look into the center in infrared light. Okay, so when the James Webb Space Telescope set its size on supernova 1987A, what did it see? Webb has some very sophisticated instruments, which means that you can get images at each of these infrared wavelengths. So when we scanned or looked at these images from a short wavelength up to long wavelengths, suddenly we saw a very bright point source coming up in the center of the supernova. So that, of course, made us very excited, and uh, we immediately thought that, uh, well, this has to be the compact object which we are seeing. Wow. But that's just a point of light. Now, how did you determine whether or not it's a neutron star? We actually discovered a number of other spectral lines uh, from um, ionized versions of argon, argon atoms which had lost one electron, and then we saw another line corresponding from um, argon which has lost five electrons. And uh, in order to kick out these electrons from the atoms, then you do need very high energy radiation. You need something like X-rays, And that was a very strong indication that uh, you did have some object which produced these X-rays, and uh, the most natural candidate for that, that's a neutron star. But there are still mysteries uh, which are remaining exactly what kind of neutron star this, but the main point is that we do need a neutron star in order to explain these observations. So what's it like for you to finally confirm that this supernova star became a neutron star? Well, that's, of course, great. (laughs) I've been struggling with this object now for half my life, so it's uh, quite exciting to see that something is really confirmed. (laughs) But even after 37 years, there's still some more work to do. Yeah, fortunately, so uh, (laughs) I will not be unemployed. (laughs) Dr. Franson, thank you so much for your time. Thanks a lot. Dr. Klaus Franzen is a professor of astrophysics at Stockholm University. There are many treatments out there that promise to help with obesity. For most of them, the idea is the same. Reduce calories in order to trigger weight loss. But that's easier said than done. Dietary changes are notoriously difficult to stick to. And more invasive solutions like medications or bariatric surgery can come with some major risks. Well, now a team from MIT have come up with a new option. A vibrating pill they've tested in pigs, which can trick the stomach into thinking it's full. Dr. Shriya Srinivasan is an assistant professor of bioengineering at Harvard University. Hello and welcome to Quirks and Quarks. Thank you so much for having me. Where did this idea of vibrating pill for the stomach come from? I was very interested in sensory feedback mechanisms in the body, 
and came to learn about these receptors in the stomach that actually sense distension. And it's the sensing of distension that induces satiety or the feeling of fullness. And so we learned and were able to discover that these stretch receptors are actually uh, sensitive to certain frequencies of vibration. And so having this information, we then wanted to build a system that could perform that same sort of mechanostimulation to artificially trigger these same stretch receptors um, to sense distension or, or feel like they were being distended um, and provide that sensory feedback to the body. Now, when you say distension, you mean how the stomach stretches when it fills with food? That's right. That's right. So as you take in food, the stomach stretches, and that stretching actually causes uh, signals to be sent up the vagus nerve, which is one of the main highways in the body. And that tells your brain to release the right hormones to process food um, and digest it, as well as releases those um, hormones that make you feel happy and satiated. Okay, so take me through how your device then sort of stimulates that same response. Sure. So you ingest a pill, which has this mechano-stimulation element inside of it. As soon as it hits the stomach acid, a coating dissolves that turns it on, and so the stimulation begins. For about 30 minutes, it's going to perform a vibratory stimulation of the stomach lining, and this is going to be sensed by stretch receptors that are sitting in the muscle layer of the stomach. How big is the pill? The pill is about the size of a vitamin, um, a multivitamin that you might take every morning. And what's inside it? There's batteries and some electronic components and a small motor that create the mechanostimulation. <laughs> okay, so it, it literally buzzes when, when it's in your stomach. How, how fast does it buzz? It is in the frequency range around 80 hertz, uh, but, but there's a range um, within which it's most uh, effective. 80 hertz, that's 80 cycles per second. So that's what, mm, something like that? Something like that. <laughs> so how then do those vibrations trick the brain into thinking that the stomach is full? So these receptors pick up on that vibration uh, and they are tricked into thinking that they're actually stretching. And so they trigger the nerves to send these signals back up to the brain. Um, and the brain then senses um, the stretch and it thinks, okay, the stomach is stretching. And so it triggers the entire cascade of events that occur when you actually take in food and, um, and that stretches the stomach. How long does the pill stay in the body? So the pill stays in the body as long as a normal meal would. So as you ingest a meal, it gets processed, then it travels through the intestines and gets passed. The pill kind of follows that same trajectory. Now, how is this different from other technologies that are supposed to make us feel full? Well, there are a range of technologies. The most simple ones involve behavioral changes, lifestyle modifications, to actually just decrease your caloric intake. So there's that on one end, and then there's on the other end, of course, you know, drugs and surgeries um, and intragastric balloons. And these tend to be effective uh, to some period of time, but they can also be really expensive. They can necessitate large changes in the lifestyle. So. Mm -hmm. Patients sometimes find them difficult to implement um, and see, you know, longitudinal weight loss. So, for in, for example, an intragastric balloon has a really nice effect for the first few, few weeks, but 10 to 12 weeks later, that effect may wear off and patients find themselves gaining weight again. Ah, so your vibrating pill doesn't involve any drugs. It's just strictly a mechanical vibration that's tricking the brain. Yeah, that's right. Uh, it doesn't have any drugs. It doesn't require any sort of invasive surgeries. 
and we're hijacking a natural pathway. <laughs> How often would someone have to take this pill? In theory, they would take it before every meal, right? Um, oh. And it would cause them to want to take in less food. And that restriction, that caloric restriction, would thereby um, lead to weight reduction. Now, I know that you use this pill as a test in pigs. How did the animals react when they ate these, these pills in their stomachs? So over the period of time that we tested, we didn't see any um, significant changes in their behavior. The only change was they seemed a little bit more inactive after the meals. Um, and we think that this might be something like a food coma, uh, where that stretched response creates a satiated feeling, and they're a little bit more lethargic. But other than that, we didn't notice any sort of negative side effects. But of course, this requires you know, longer-term testing in a greater number of animals. How much did it reduce their food intake? A surprising 40% on average. Wow, that's amazing. What was your reaction when you saw how well your vibrating pill actually worked? Honestly, I was surprised. Um, it is very challenging to run large animal studies in pigs, especially for something like obesity um, and, and weight loss, because pigs tend to eat a lot of food um, and they eat it very quickly. <laughs> and so the entire research team was actually pleasantly surprised when we, we noticed that they were not finishing their entire meal. So what's your next step? We're looking to, of course, scale this up and, and do further testing um, in animals and then later in humans uh, to test its efficacy, look for side effects, look at the long-term effects and see whether we can sustain this effect over many weeks and months. What impact do you think a device like this could make for people who are struggling with obesity? You know, obesity is a long-standing challenge. Um, the WHO says that, you know, 1.9 billion adults are struggling with it. And in many areas of the world, I think cost and the heavy burden that, you know, significant lifestyle changes um, require can often be a challenge to really keeping the weight off amidst a hectic lifestyle. And so I think a system like this that's really accessible uh, without uh, side effects potentially could have a really large impact in helping these patients um, get onto, you know, a healthier lifestyle. My hope would be that patients use this almost in a rehabilitative sense. So use it for a period of time to help them get on track um, and incorporate other lifestyle changes that then they can continue to maintain and, and perhaps wean off of this. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Dr. Shriya Srinivasan is an assistant professor of bioengineering at Harvard University. The migration of zebra, wildebeest, and gazelles across the Serengeti Plain is an impressive annual event. Involving almost 2 million animals, it's the largest migration of mammals on the planet. Fascinatingly, these herbivores move in the same order every year. Zebras first, then wildebeest, with gazelles trailing behind. However, there hasn't been much insight into why this is. But with a huge array of instruments and observations, supported by tens of thousands of citizen volunteers, Dr. Michael Anderson and his fellow researchers have solved this puzzle. Dr. Anderson is a professor of biology at Wake Forest University in North Carolina. Hello and welcome to our program. Great, thanks. It's great to be here. Well, we've all seen videos of the migration, like uh, thundering herds of wildebeest running along. 
uh, and you see mixed groups of animals. So what's the actual shape of the migration and how far does, does it go? Yeah, so it has always been assumed that this was like an enormous game of follow the leader with the zebras first, the wildebeest next, and the Thompson's gazelles last. And, and again, historically, it was assumed that they were separated in time by about two months. And when we analyzed eight years of data, uh, we saw something that looked a little bit different. So the first thing we saw is that instead of really the zebra out in front and coming first, we saw that they were very closely spaced to the migrating wildebeest. So it really looked more like co-migration than zebra out in front two, two months ahead of the wildebeest. We did see Thompson's gazelles following behind wildebeest by about three weeks. So we, we did see them following behind, but on a much shorter timescale than had previously been thought. Well, how did you go about studying the migration? Because you say it's covering such a large area with more than a million animals. Well, yeah. So we used, um, we used mul multiple different types of technology. Uh, the first being um, camera traps. So these are stationary cameras, which we put out into the grasslands. We, we either attach them to trees or we secure them in metal boxes, which are attached to metal poles and anchored in the ground. Um, we have to do that because, you know, there's elephants and hyenas and fire and all sorts of things that can damage these cameras. So we put uh, over 150 of these out in the ecosystem at any one time over this eight year period. And then as the animals move through on their annual migration, we can actually see exactly what animals are where and at what time. And so by putting all those data together, we can really get this landscape scale picture of the migration. The, the other thing we did is we, um, and I already mentioned this, is the um, individual zebra and wildebeest were attached with GPS rate, uh, collars. And so those collars communicate with satellites. And as they move around the ecosystem, those satellites uh, report where the actual individuals are in space. And so by combining these two pieces of data, we could really get a, a, a picture of the spatial patterning of the migration. Now, these animals are vegetarians. Uh, so are, do they eat different plants as they go along or are they following the vegetation? What, what did you see? Yeah, so, so they, um, they do eat different plants. And this was one of the most surprising parts of the study. Um, so we, we've always known that these migrants were grazers. So grazers eat grass and browsers eat uh, woody plants and trees. And in fact, when we analyzed the, the diets, we saw that zebra focused on grass, wildebeest, focused mostly on grass, but also ate about 20% about twenty of their diet was something that we call forbs, which are like, I don't know, like the dandelions growing in your lawn. You know, they're the herbaceous plants mm -hmm. that are not grasses. And then the Thompson's gazelles ate about 75% of their diet uh, was, was actually forbs and not grasses. So it looked like they were partitioning the resources much more than we thought. The Thompson's gazelles in particular were, were following behind the wildebeest and the zebra and, and picking out these rare and highly nutritious forb species that the wildebeest and the zebra were not particularly focused on. Oh, because I, I would think that if you're following a gigantic herd of wildebeest, that they would pretty well clean up the land. There wouldn't be anything to eat behind them. Right, right. So, so two things happen. The first thing that happens is there is that three-week period after the wildebeest 
And those three weeks actually allows enough time for some regrowth to happen. But the other thing is, is that because the Thompson's gazelles are focused on these forb species, these rare forb species that are not targeted by the wildebeest and zebra, what it means is um, if they follow the wildebeest, the wildebeest open up the grass canopy layer by grazing it down. And that allows the Thompson's gazelles to follow behind and selectively pick out these rare forbs that would be very hard for them to find and access otherwise. So there is that foraging benefit to following the wildebeest um, that, that, that is literally opening up the grass canopy for them so they can get these rare plants that they seek. Okay, so that's the gazelles at the back of the herd or the back of this parade. What about the zebra at the front? Yeah, so that was the other interesting thing that we, we found by looking at the, um, the diet data and the camera trap and GPS collar data is that it had always been assumed that it was this follow the leader where there was also a benefit for the wildebeest to follow the, the zebra. But that's not what we found. What Actually, what we found is that the wildebeest, because of their enormous size, uh, uh, their enormous herd size, over 1.3 million of these animals, that they consume so much vegetation that it actually... Uh, pushes the zebra out in front through a competitive process. Um, and this was really the first time that, that this um, competition on the front end of the migration and facilitation on the back end of the migration was found. Um, and, and the only way we could really do this is by analyzing, you know, eight, eight years of data. Our conclusion was that, that, that they would probably stay behind if they could and forage on that vegetation, but they're actually forced ahead. They're nudged ahead by the, by the wildebeest uh, because these large herds just consume all the vegetation. Now, your study mentions 130,000 volunteers from 77 countries. How did you get them involved? What did they do? Yeah, that was, that was really an amazing part of this study. Um, and it was, uh, pioneered by my collaborator, Craig Packer at the University of Minnesota. And, and what he did, so the reason that we um, involved these citizen scientists was to help us classify the enormous numbers of pictures that we collect every year from our camera trap grid. So we get somewhere, you know, somewhere around a million or more images every year. So my collaborator, Craig Packer, had this great idea to um, team up with Zooniverse, at the University of Minnesota and create this uh, citizen science website called Snapshot Serengeti. And by putting the images up online and allowing citizen scientists to uh, help classify those images, it really sped up the rate at which these could be classified and then used as data. Dr. Anderson, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it, Bob. Thank you so much. Dr. Michael Anderson is a professor of biology at Wake Forest University in North Carolina. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings, host of The Big Story. For six years now, we've been telling one story a day, every one of them about something that matters to Canadians. This spring, though, we're going deeper. The Big Story presents Pay Dirt, the inside story of Ontario's Greenbelt scandal. From political games to stag and doe parties, endangered species, RCMP investigations, and Las Vegas massages, you will hear the full story. The Big Story presents Pay Dirt, New episodes every Monday, and you can get them all by following The Big Story wherever you get your podcasts. 
I'm Bob McDonald, and you're listening to Quirks and Quarks on CBC Radio 1. Coming up later in the program... If you think about the Earth, it's filled with liquid rock. It, it basically is an endless energy source. Magma energy could be giving us 10 times more energy than conventional geothermal wealth. In humans, biological sex is determined by genes. But that's not the same for many other animals. For some, whether their young are born male or female depends on the presence or absence of certain bacteria. Others only produce male offspring from fertilized eggs, while unfertilized ones become females. For endangered green sea turtles, it's all about temperature. Hatchlings are born male in cooler temperatures and female in the hotter spots. And if you've been following the weather trends in the last few decades, well, you know where this is going. More and more clutches of green sea turtle young are producing females. In some places, like in part of the Great Barrier Reef off Australia, hundreds of females are born for every male. But when Arthur Barassa was studying these clutches, he noticed something strange. He and other researchers tried to predict the sex of the baby turtles based on temperature, but their predictions were always slightly off. So he decided to look at what else might be at play. Dr. Barassa is a researcher at the Australian Rivers Institute in the Gold Coast campus of Griffith University. Hello and welcome to our program. Hello, happy to be here. First of all, how threatened are green sea turtles as a species? All species of sea turtle are considered either threatened or endangered, and it really depends on the region. In Australia, they're seen as threatened, and I think also in the west coast of the United States and Canada, they're considered threatened as well. Well, what are your concerns about this situation of having such an uneven female-to-male ratio among the young? The problems with this sex ratio is that at some point in time, there will not be enough males to mate with the females that are available. The good thing is that many sea turtles actually live for quite some time, over at least over 80 years. So this is something that's sort of a problem that we're seeing now that kind of needs to be addressed now instead of 20 or 30 years from now where it might be a bigger problem. I guess the uh, the turtles also live in the open ocean. So, I mean, even finding a mate now is hard, isn't it? Yeah. So turtles usually do this thing where they all aggregate into one location. How they choose this location or how they end up going there is a little bit of a mystery, but they will often gather together into these breeding aggregations. And then males will usually fight over females. But, you know, at, with the current trends, maybe they won't need to fight that hard, but at least... Uh, that's usually what happens. Now, you suspected that temperature wasn't the only thing that determines the sex of these baby turtles. What did you study here? When I've gone to many different conferences looking at sea turtle research, I was noticing that not just myself, but other people were also getting a little bit of variation in their predictions uh, when just using temperature to see what kind of sex ratio you would have in the clutches. And then I started working with some folks over at uh, the University of Queensland who wanted to do a study where they artificially cool the nests to get more males. And as part of that study, they asked me to do the toxicology side of things to sort of look at contaminants just to see if like, oh, are these, is there contaminants in sea turtle hatchlings? But that also provided me the opportunity to see, are there contaminants that may be affecting the sex ratio of these turtles? And so what was interesting about my work is that I did end up finding some stronger relationships between some of these chemicals versus just temperature alone. Now, when you say uh, chemicals, what are you talking about? 
Specifically, what I found was that as cadmium, antimony, and I did this thing where I added all metals that are considered estrogenic. And as those increased in the sea turtle tissue, there were more females than expected just based on temperature. So those specific chemicals have been studied in the past for having estrogenic effects. And some chemicals like antimony are found in a lot of plastics as well. And so as we increase plastic production, that kind of increases uh, those trace elements into the environment. Now, when you say estrogenic effect, what do you mean by that? Some chemicals and even some elements when they enter into our bodies and they're not necessarily like natural chemicals or natural elements can act like or disrupt certain hormones. So some chemicals can act like estrogen within our body or activate some of the same genes or some of the same pathways as estrogen. But because it's not estrogen, it ends up causing a lot of different problems. Uh, With sea turtles, we're kind of guessing that it acts like estrogen, which then pushes the turtle more towards the female side during development than the male side. Ah. So if these chemicals are coming from uh, ocean pollution, the baby turtles, uh, their eggs are laid on land. So how are the chemicals getting into the babies? The life of a mama turtle is basically you are hatched from an egg, you go out into the open ocean, and then you come back to roughly the area where you were born. But you then pick an area where you then live for long periods of time, only leaving for breeding migrations. So a lot of these mama turtles are picking locations like Morton Bay, which is right next to Brisbane, a major city, and they'll live there for years on end until they fatten up in order to then have eggs. And so when these eggs develop inside the mom, some of these chemicals are actually transferred from mom to the developing offspring. And then once they're laid, they could be laid in a beach hundreds of miles away, but are having pollutants from where their mom was living which is also very far away. So a lot of these hatchlings start life with some sort of starting point of contamination from their moms. What's the source of these chemicals? Most of these chemicals come from human pollution. So for example, I mentioned that the turtles that live in Morton Bay, they're getting a lot of runoff from the city of of Brisbane or they're getting runoff from Morton Bay. There can be industrial processes like coal mining and um, gas-powered plants that just put contaminants into the environment. And once these contaminants get into the food sources, they are then eaten by turtles. And because sea turtles live for a long time, they can sometimes accumulate more contaminants than you may expect. Well, how does the effect of these chemicals producing more female turtles compare to the effect of rising temperatures? Right. So at the end of the day, rising temperatures is probably going to have the strongest effect, but Where we are concerned is that with such a high female sex ratio in some of these beaches, the chemicals can make the difference between 90% and maybe even 95%. And so how these chemicals could be doing that is when these turtles are laying eggs and their hatchlings are developing, there's a period of time where their sex is determined. And if they're absorbing some of these chemicals in the yolk while this development is happening, they are producing more female hormones than they otherwise would just on the temperature. So temperature activates certain genes, which will then push the turtle in one direction or the other towards male or towards female. And it's a bit of a, of a spectrum kind of, and these chemicals kind of add more weight to the female side, sort of pushing it 
so that when it would normally have become male in the middle temperatures, it now becomes female. Boy, so we have a double whammy happening here for the turtles. Yes, that's sort of the fear that my paper is sort of putting out there is that like, this is something that maybe we should also consider, especially since every little bit is kind of going to make a difference. Well, knowing that pollution also contributes to sex determination in sea turtles, what can we do to protect them? I think having uh, comprehensive policies towards reducing pollution in our ocean is really good overall. The other thing is that we're not quite sure how far this effect is. More studies looking at this and looking at what specific chemicals may be causing this is something that I think would become really important. Have you seen this effect of pollution producing more females in any other animals? Yes. So there's been studies in alligators that that have been in really polluted lakes where they were getting excessive amounts of, in that, in that case, males. There were some studies that showed that if you expose freshwater turtles to enough pollution, they will only hatch females. So this has actually already been shown definitively in freshwater turtles and alligators. It's just never been looked at with such detail in sea turtles. There was one study in the past that exposed sea turtle eggs to DDE, but the problem with that is the environment isn't just one chemical. There is a whole cocktail of chemicals out there, and a lot of times they interact and can become more potent with each other. So there's more than one reason to reduce ocean pollution. Dr. Barraza, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Arthur Barraza is a researcher at the Australian Rivers Institute in the Gold Coast campus of Griffith University. Thousands of tremors have hit the town in the past few weeks. Now the danger of a catastrophic eruption is apparently imminent. So this is the moment of the eruption captured by a, a webcam. So you can see the red-hot lava starting to erupt, shooting up like a fountain. There is little people can do but watch as lava swallowed their homes. This is big. This is serious. It's basically as bad as can possibly get. We've seen some pretty dramatic scenes from around the town of Grindavik in the southwest of Iceland. A volcano that's been quiet for 800 years has become active once again. Residents of Grindavik have finally been allowed back in their homes, at their own risk, but officials are still warning them not to spend the night and to be extremely careful while they're there. There have been three volcanic eruptions in this region since last fall, and as you can imagine, scientists have been keeping a close eye on this area. And they now have a much better idea of what's behind these recurring eruptions, which they've detailed in a new study. Dr. Freystein Sigmundson led the work. He's a geophysics research professor at Nordic Volcanological Center at the University of Iceland. Hello, Dr. Sigmundson. Welcome to our program. Thank you. First of all, can you describe what happened deep underground in this general area that led up to the recent volcanic eruptions? Yeah, there is a, a, a new period of activity beginning in this part of Iceland. Volcanic activity is very episodic. And in this part of Iceland, uh, close to Grindavík, uh, magma is accumulating at about five kilometer depth. And, and that uh, then uh, episodically uh, becomes unstable, uh, a critical pressure is reached and magma can flow upwards either into magma-filled cracks or all the way to the surface in eruptions. And this is a repeating process because the magma flow from depth continues today. Now, this isn't the only eruption. There have been several other eruptions. Uh, is there any connection between them? 
In this overall area in southwest Iceland that has been active in the last uh, three years, there are two main areas that have been active. Yes, there were initially three eruptions in a, a, a somewhat different area from 2021 to 23, but now activity has picked up. Uh, there had been accumulation of magma in the subsurface, but on 10th of November last year, there was a, a, a changing point when magma uh, flowed into the topmost few kilometers of the crust very suddenly and it formed a magma filled crack that was about 15 kilometer long uh, that is basically like a, a vertical sheet in, in 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 the inside the earth it propagated under the town of Grindavik and caused a lot of of surface fracturing and fissuring and that led to the first evacuation of the people of Grindavik now you talk about a, a sheet. Take me underground. What 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 would it look like if I could look underground and see this magma chamber and how it reaches the surface? Yes. So the chamber, or more likely, it is sort of loosely connected uh, pieces of crustal volume that have magma. It is not all in one sort of container with all the magma mixed. And this resides at about five kilometer depth. In addition to this, we have this magma filled cracks that are forming. And they have aspect ratio comparable to a paper sheet. So sometimes we refer to them as magmatic sheets. It, it sounds like you, somebody took a knife and just dug it into the earth and made a slit. And that's where the, where the magma is coming up. Yeah, and we have a new understanding of that. that was our study that was published in Science was to, to explain how we can get this very rapid magma inflow into these kind of structures. And here in Iceland, a very important element is the forces due to the movements uh, that make up the, the surface of the earth, the tectonic plates of the earth. Here in Iceland, the, the plate movements are occurring at a similar rate as your fingernails are growing, uh, and they, they are diverging, they, they are separating, and this leads to very strong forces in the crust. We need to form more new crust uh, to to keep in 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 phase with the with the movements of the plates. So we are forming a, a new edge of the so-called North American plate that extends to here to the to the Pacific coast. So as the Earth's plates move apart, new material has to come up from below to fill in the gap. So Iceland's actually getting bigger. Is that true? There is uh, erosion. The distance from East Iceland to West Iceland is increasing, but at the same time, uh, there is erosion by the sea at the other edges. So maybe it is in, in stability. Oh, okay. <laughs> but okay. So let me just see if I've got this right here. We got this chamber. So I, I'm thinking of something like a like a balloon, uh, but it's got more than one neck in it, and then there's a slit above that balloon where the lava shoots up to the surface. Is that the idea? That is the idea. The the balloon may be elongated. This area may be about uh, have a horizontal dimension up to about eight kilometer long, and 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 much thinner, maybe two three kilometers. So it is more like a like a spheroid, not a, a a complete sphere. How do you actually measure lava flow underground like that? Yeah, uh, it's a good question. <laughs> what we can do is we can measure what the surface of the Earth is doing. We have we can do precise geodetic measurements to try to map crustal deformation, and that is the key to get any volumes uh, or or magma flow rates. 
What we do is we can have, have units we place on the ground that measure, for example, uplift or subsidence or the horizontal movements. And this can be on the, when we have these episodic events, these can be on the meter scale, so they can be quite large. And when we have a, a, a pattern of crustal deformation that we have measured, that can be interpreted. Well, now that you have an idea of how the lava is moving underground, how well does that enable you to predict when the next eruption will happen? There are still many challenges in, in forecasting eruptions. Uh, we know that today pressure is in, increasing in the subsurface. There is more magma accumulating. Uh, so the trick is to understand this pressure buildup. We know uh, approximately how much magma flowed out during last eruption, and we expect for this volcano that we need to reach that level uh, again. So the inflow during the sort of preparatory phase for next eruption uh, needs to accumulate at least equal amount of magma as erupted last time. And that is what we are basing a forecast on now, and that gives us maybe one or two weeks until next eruption. Boy. So how long do you anticipate the volcanic activity around Grindavik to last? We don't know, and that is one of the difficulties for the population of Grindavik. Uh, it depends uh, on how much magma can flow up from these deeper levels, uh, <clears throat> basically from the mantle of the Earth, and that is highly uncertain, but uh, the between the eruptions, the patterns have uh, repeated that there is pressure increase and it is relatively fast still. So that signifies relatively fast inflow from depth. It could continue at least for, for months, I would expect, or even longer time than that. So what can happen to stop it is really that this pressure increase stops or there is a, another possibility, namely that the activity moves to a different area uh, in southwest Iceland because it seems that the volcanic areas are connected to some degree. Releasing pressure in one of them can have an influence on the next. Dr. Sigmundson, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your interest. Bye-bye. Dr. Freystein Sigmundsson is a geophysics research professor at Nordic Volcanological Center at the University of Iceland. Now, Icelanders are familiar with the costs of living in a volcanically active landscape. On average, a volcano erupts in the land of fire and ice, as Iceland is known, about every four years. But they've harnessed the benefits as well, making good use of their geothermal resources. Tourists travel from all over the world to visit their hot springs, and more than 85% of the homes in Iceland are warmed by geothermal heat. But the way they do that now isn't as efficient as they hope to do it in the future. Scientists and engineers are working on an ambitious plan, a world first, to actually drill into a magma chamber that was discovered in 2009. Yalti Paul Ingolfsson is the director of the Geothermal Research Initiative in Iceland at an organization known as Georg. Hello, Mr. Ingolfsson, and welcome to our program. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. First of all, what exactly is a magma chamber? Well, magma chamber is where you have magma accumulating within the crust of the Earth. So the magma chamber we are looking at uh, in the KMT project in Krafla is a magma chamber that uh, basically is, you could call it a pocket of magma 
that has been accumulating probably over time and it has been there for quite some time because it is uh, what we call a rhyolitic magma. It has evolved a bit, different to what is erupting in, in Grindavik or Reykjanes, which is more basaltic, a fresher magma. Oh, I see. So it's sort of like a, a bubble or a blob of liquid rock that's hidden within the crust. Yeah, you could call it like that. But it's closer to a frozen peanut butter or something like that rather than a, <laughs> a liquid in kind. Oh, okay. Well, how was this magma chamber discovered? Well, in 2009, the Icelandic deep drilling project was drilling its first well. And uh, the aim was definitely to drill down to depth of four to five kilometers. It started quite easily. They drilled down, uh, you know, with a conventional drill set down to 1900 meters or so when they started to, to get into an uh, area where you had total loss of circulation. So all the drilling fluid that was pumped down, which is circulated most of the time up to the surface, it, it got lost within the area. And soon after that, the drill bit got stuck. So they drilled again and I got stuck again for the second time. So they had to repeat and, and drill again to the site. And for the third time, they really understood that there was something going on there, something that they did not have seen before. And eventually they started to get chips to the surface that were quenched glass, which is basically when you cool magma very quickly, you get a glass. And this is when they realized that they were fighting magma. Wow. Now, I know that Iceland is sitting on the boundary between two of the Earth's plates, the North American and the uh, Asian plate, and they're pulling apart. Is that why this magma chamber is so close to the surface there? That could, of course, be the case. And uh, we are also seeing, for example, now in the episode in Reykjanes, that there is magma accumulating basically underneath the Blue Lagoon, and then it's erupting out. So when the plates are splitting together, it creates a void where magma basically fills it up. And that could be one of the reasons. Now, is there any danger, if you're drilling into a magma chamber, that it might erupt, like your, your hole would become the equivalent of a volcano? Well, it, the experience shows that it does not erupt, uh, not specifically this type of magma. Mm -hmm. Well, I did see a video of those drilling attempts, and there was steam, like, really coming out fast from the ground. Yes, it, it was flowing quite fast, and it was interesting when they started the flow test the steam coming out was really dark. It was almost black. And the reason for that is the, the harsh environment that we have there, it was corroding the casing of the well. And then they did this test for maybe uh, 15 minutes or so. And, and after that, the steam was absolutely clear. What are you hoping to learn from it from a scientific point of view? Well, KMT is aimed at basically to really important things. One is to understand the volcanology and how to predict better behavior of magma within the crust and, and hopefully somehow calibrate our signals that we are seeing on the surface to what is actually happening within the crust. That would be very interesting to understand the methods to detect these magma chambers better. The second thing is to understand how we can utilize geothermal. So our aim basically with KMT is to drill two boreholes. 
Our first borehole will be a monitoring and sampling borehole where we will drill down to the magma chamber's roof through the uh, solid rock above the magma chamber and then into magma. We will cool in front of the drill bit, so we will basically freeze magma in front of the drill bit and gathering with that samples or cores from solid rock through the boundary layers into magma. And this has never been done before and would just stand alone be a huge achievement and huge uh, opportunity to for knowledge uh, increase. Then we will hopefully be able to install uh, sensors within magma in this sort of frozen tunnel that we have created, both for temperature and pressure, hopefully, before the borehole collapse and melt again. So with that enclosing sensors within the magma itself, and then have monitoring sensors up the well to give us direct measurement of magma and the surrounding areas. The second well will then be drilled for more of an experimental reasons. We will do a flow test, allowing the fluid that is uh, surrounding the magma chamber to go up to the surface, but also pumping uh, water down to the magma and cool it down. And in the meantime, monitor every behavior in the first well. Now, besides the scientific value of drilling into the magma, why is this of interest for geothermal power? If you think about the Earth, it's filled with liquid rock. It, it basically is an endless energy source. Magma energy could be giving us 10 times more energy than conventional geothermal well. Wow. Now, why is that? This is basically because of the higher temperature, mainly. You know, we are talking about much higher temperature, close to five to 600 degrees even. Uh, of course, that is giving us a lot of energy. We take the groundwater that drips down to the magma roof. It heats up to maybe six to 700 degrees. It goes as steam through the pipes and up to the turbines and power the turbines to generate electricity. And what is also interesting is that there is also quite a lot of energy that is, is released by crystallizing the rock, which gives it a, a more sustainable use. So we foresee that this can be utilized many places in the world when we have realized the, the potential and understood the ways to go about it. So how close are you to breaking ground on this project? We hope to uh, start in 2026. Mr. Ingolfsson, thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you. It was a pleasure. That was Yalti Paul Ingolfsson, the director of the Geothermal Research Initiative in Iceland. And that's it for Quirks and Quarks this week. If you'd like to get in touch with us, our email is quirks at cbc.ca. Or just go to the contact link on our webpage at cbc.ca slash quirks where you can read my latest blog or listen to our audio archives. You can also follow our podcast or get us on the CBC Listen app. It's free from the App Store or Google Play. Quirks and Quarks was produced by Olsi Sorokina, Rosie Fernandez, Amanda Buckowitz, and Sonia Biting. Our senior producer is Jim Lemons. I'm Bob McDonald. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.